Thank you, John, for that. It's great to be sharing with you today. I hope everyone's doing well. I, I want us to imagine how the disciples would have felt during this time. We know the full story. In Holy Week, the week leading up to Easter, we go through the whole narrative the emotions, the betrayal, the corrupt authorities, and finally, the horrific torture and death of Christ. Yet we know the end of the story, the joy that Christ is risen. There is therefore for me, and maybe for you simultaneously, a sense of sadness and yet joy at the risen Christ. However, for the disciples after his death, there would have only been despair and sorrow. Their Lord, their Savior, their friend had suffered the cruelest of deaths on a cross and now these followers are seemingly alone, abandoned. We read at the beginning of the passage that they locked their doors for fear of being found by the Jewish authorities and presumably suffering a similar fate to their master. Their fear and sorrow would have been overwhelming. Imagine that you, you were really close to someone for a few years, either at work or university or school, and now imagine that person being ripped away from you. Or if you're a soldier who has lost his friend in war right before his eyes. This is how the disciples would have been feeling. However, Jesus was more than a friend. He was everything to these people. He was their life. They had completely uprooted their way of being for him. But then Jesus comes into the room and reveals himself to them. It is interesting that Jesus' first words are, peace be with you. The Hebrew word for this is shalom. The word was as a common greeting like, all right, or hey, and, and therefore, there's almost an ordinary sense of the word as merely someone greeting his friends. However, again, this is no ordinary friend. Jesus is God himself. And therefore, this proclamation of peace would have gone directly into the hearts of these disciples. Remember, these people would have been feeling abject fear and as far from peace as humanly possible. And therefore, Jesus knows exactly what to say to them. Yet Jesus does not just give them peace. He is the Prince of Peace, peace itself. Therefore, these first words are so important as it reveals not only what Jesus offers to the disciples, but shows who Jesus is. When we talk about peace, we don't just mean a superficial sense uh, that everything will be fine, because it usually is not. Biblical peace does not focus on the absence of trouble. It is there in spite of it. Peace fundamentally means a reconciliation or joining with God. It is a wholeness, a completeness, one where we know we are totally accepted and completely known. Peace is that despite the suffering that this year has brought, there is nevertheless still an inner security with God, a peace that surpasses all understanding. 
God's peace is secure in spite of difficult circumstances. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian watchmaker who spent much of the war at the Ravensbrück concentration camp for hiding Jews at her home. She once said, I've experienced God in the deepest, darkest hell that men can create. This is to me someone who experienced that shalom that Christ offers. Now, I don't think I've experienced her sense of peace, but yesterday I was feeling really weak, inadequate, and not at all worthy to speak to you today. And all of those things are true. However, a friend prayed for me, and as he was praying, I had a reassurance that I was a child of God, who is loved and known, warts and all. I experienced a taste of that shalom. That is the peace that Jesus offered then, and still offers to all of us today. Then we have Jesus breathing the Holy Spirit onto his disciples. This is strange for us, even in non-COVID times. Breathing on someone is generally not acceptable. Have you ever been on a busy train or a bus and someone close to you has breathed on you? It's really, really not pleasant. Now imagine you are the disciples. Jesus has just revealed himself. And instead of maybe sitting down, having a catch up, you know, talking about how things have gone, he begins to breathe on them. Yet again, this is no ordinary event. This is Jesus handing over his earthly power to another power, the power of the Holy Spirit. The words which John uses mirror God breathing life into man in Genesis 2. There is therefore a sense of new life, of rebirth. This is the age of the risen Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Yet it is also an age of forgiveness where there is a clear injunction to forgive the sins of others. Jesus, in breathing the Holy Spirit, gives the disciples a power Yet, this is not an earthly, false sense of power. This is a holy, divine power from God himself. And this power is offered to each of us today as we are filled with the Spirit. We too have access to God's power and strength, and this power is harnessed when we ask and receive the Spirit in each of us. I'm going to give you an example. I myself... I'm actually quite a nervous person when it comes to any form of public speaking. And about a month ago, I led this 6 p.m. service. I remember at the time thinking to myself, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I lead the service terribly? And so I remember saying to God, I really need you. <laughs> I really need your Holy Spirit to give me wisdom and insight and strength. And guess what he did? He not only gave me an inner peace and strength, he also prompted me with the words to use. This was not me. I really couldn't have done it without his spirit guiding me and prompting me. So far, we have Jesus who brings peace to troubled hearts. 
then he brings peace with God through the Holy Spirit and a power to live in that spirit. Finally, he brings peace to doubting minds. Let's look at Thomas, or doubting Thomas, as he is sometimes known. I wonder if Thomas was thinking, how can Peter, the one who denied he knew Jesus three times, not get a name like Peter the denier? Why am I the disciple known as the doubting one? This title, attributed to Thomas, shows the prevailing attitude that many Christians share. That doubt is an inherently bad thing since it indicates a supposed lack of faith or even unbelief. Yet doubt to me is natural, if not deeply human. We all have our doubts, and yet we all too often like to judge one another's doubts as a weakness. Many great Christians throughout history have had doubts at times. Mother Teresa famously had periods where God seemed really distant. She described it as a darkness, and this is something she struggled with for a lot of her life. And yet look at all the work she did in the name of Jesus. She lived a life in service to God by serving the poor and marginalized in Calcutta. I myself went through a big period of doubt when I was about 14. Yet even though I read a lot of C.S. Lewis, probably too much C.S. Lewis, I still had doubts, but it was the start of an intellectual foundation to my faith that Christianity does make sense. And so that I still rely on that period to today and what I read in that period. Although at the time there was no real relationship or genuine peace within that. And to this day, I still have doubts. But I have found that I can trust that God is bigger than my doubts. And that day by day, he will help me to see a clearer picture of who he is and his plans for my life. Jesus does not say to Thomas, how dare you not believe the testimony of the disciples? What is your problem? For me, there is no blame or shame placed on Thomas, nor was he shocked by this, this doubt. He was not surprised at his disciple, and he merely asks Thomas to touch his wounds on his side and see and feel for himself the reality of the risen Christ. This moment is captured so powerfully by Caravaggio as we see Thomas, his brow furrowed, staring intently at Jesus' wounds. Jesus then tells him to stop doubting and believe, to which he does. Jesus invites Thomas to experience the reality of the risen Christ and to bring his doubts to him. And through this, Thomas comes to believe who Christ says he is, his Lord and God. So how can this relate to us? You might be thinking that since we cannot physically see and feel Christ's wounds, how can this in any way relate to our experiences today? But it does relate to us since it teaches us that Christ does not say that doubt is bad, but that he wants us to bring our doubts before him and meet them in them. When we doubt, we need to bring them to Christ and ask him to reveal more of himself to us. 
Jesus wants to meet us in our doubts. He does not want us to turn away, but to bring our struggles to him and him alone. Jesus meets Thomas in the midst of his doubt, and this is what he offers us. There is a paradox that through meeting us in our doubt, our faith is strengthened and grown, but more often than not, it really is. Thomas doubted the resurrection of Christ, and yet Christian tradition associates Thomas with being the first Christian to arrive in India. That is a pretty long journey from Jerusalem for someone who supposedly lacked faith. God used Thomas's doubt for his own growth and as an example of a powerful Christian witness. Jesus's next words are an encouragement to each of us today. He tells us that blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Here Jesus blesses those who still trust in him despite the seemingly lack of evidence. Jesus blesses those who still trust in him despite abject suffering. Jesus blesses those who experience persecution. He blesses those who are, vic who are victims of violence, those in poverty. He blesses those who maintain their trust in him despite the difficulties that life throws all of us, at all of us. And he blesses all of us today he understands that life is difficult and that our circumstances sometimes make any trust difficult. He is fundamentally a God who cares and understands. He welcomes our doubts and yet blesses those whose faith has been challenged but still maintain their trust in him. If you are listening to this sermon today and thinking that you can relate to Thomas, I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that God offers each of us faith through his spirit if we ask. This offering of faith is not saving faith, but almost an extraordinary amount of faith in who God is and what he promises to us. So if you feel, in, if you, feel you need an outpouring of faith, pray these words. God, I pray for the gift of faith so that day by day I can trust in you more and more and your plans for my life. So bring your doubts before the Lord and through this you will be blessed. Or maybe you are someone who needs to know peace, not about your intellectual doubt, but a peace with God. Maybe you need the Holy Spirit to assure you of a relationship with God. If that's you again, there's a simple prayer. God, I'm sorry for the times I have turned my back on you. I thank you that you are a loving father. Please help me to recognize that my relationship with you is everything and that you are everything to me. And finally, maybe today you're just in a place where you want that reassuring, comforting peace from God that Jesus offered when he said, Shalom. Maybe you just need a touch from God tonight. So whichever it is, I'm just going to pray, come Holy Spirit, 
And let's let God minister to us now, bringing peace to our minds and hearts with God, our maker.